The Courage to Lead, Episode 55. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at IB4E-Coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a great week. Um, I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to talk to my next guest and introduce you to him. Please welcome Zach Hamilton. Zach Hamilton is principal and global head of retail experience at Medallia, a pioneer and market leader in experience management. By using his 10 years of retail experience, Zach actively advises executive leaders at more than 200 retail brands across the world who utilize Medallia for their customer and employee experience partner. Some of these brands include Macy's, The Home Depot, Sephora, Pandora Jewelers, Coach, Ferragamo, Valentino, and Versace. Prior to joining Medallia, Zach was the head of customer experience and sales strategy for a North American retailer. Zach led customer experience strategy, customer service operations, and sales strategy by focusing on building for their customers by their customers. He understands the dynamic nature of customer and employee experience within omni-channel organizations and how to utilize customer and employee feedback to innovate, drive digital transformation, scale initiatives across 1,700 plus retail stores, and lead cross-department teams. Zach, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Coach Arlen. No, this is awesome. Man, you've had some great experience. Some of these store, Macy's, Home Depot, Sephora, that's that's a nice list. Nice customer list. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I truly believe you think about experience and, and uh, customer and employee experience is essentially um, the competitive differentiation. And I believe all brands, regardless if you're in the retail vertical, hospitality, or even just healthcare, every brand understands it's so paramount. And, uh, you know, I'm just fortunate and blessed to work with the best of the best brands. That's awesome. Well, and customer experience and, and employee experience is huge these days. So definitely want to talk about that, uh, how you got into all this and, and kind of what your uh, your future looks like. All right. Yes. But before we get started, I have 10 questions, Zach. Uh, the listeners know that these are the questions uh, made famous on the award-winning show Inside the Actor Studio, where host James Lipton asks these questions of his guests. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So Zach, if you're ready, for sure. Let's go. 10 questions. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Uh, winning. Winning. What is your least favorite word? I would say impossible. Good job. What turns you on? Uh, eleva- elevating others to achieve their winning. Okay. And what turns you off? Um... I would say just negative, negative mindsets um, and those who want to tear down others. Good job. Um, what sound or noise do you love? That's oh, easy. I would say just um, in the morning, being around the ocean and just hearing the waves crash into the beach with no one around. Nice. And what sound or noise do you hate? You know, it took me a while to think about this one. I, I'll go back to the noise that I just heard. So not too long ago, I needed to get new brakes on my mm. Jeep, and just that brake against rotor, 
I mean, I think it made my turtle, my toes curl. So I would say, <laughs> let's go with that. Yeah, that would definitely do it. All right, Zach, what is your favorite curse word? I don't know if I necessarily have a favorite curse word. I mean, I have two daughters that are in Catholic elementary, so if they hear me say something, they will encourage me to add it to my confession list. But <laughs> I will say there, I've noticed myself, I will say the F word. Okay. That seems to be the most not, popular. In, not around uh, them, but no. just day to day it might can come out in my office. It happens. It happens. <laughs> All right. Question number eight. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, professional triathlete. Okay. And what profession would you not like to do? Uh, anything in the medical field. When I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be an ER doctor, and we got to um, do some career exploration, and I quickly found out that the medical field would not be for me. Yeah, <laughs> same here. All right, and finally, Zach, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You're worthy. You're worthy. Good job. All right, Zach, we were... We'll come back and talk a little bit about your, uh, your experience in school, how that led you to where you are now, and what's next, all right? Sure. So we'll be back right after this, so stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. All right, and we are back uh, with my guest, Zach Hamilton. Zach, thanks again for agreeing to be on the podcast. Um, happy to have you here and talk to you about this stuff. I said in, during the uh, reading your bio, I mean, you've got some amazing experience. Talk to me about uh, how you got started. Talk, let's go back to where you went to school. Did you start off being a sales guy and a customer service guy? What was your background? Yeah, it, it's really interesting. You know, when I, when I was in high school, I, um, I always thought I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, for some reason, you know, I loved going to um, zoos and I loved just, I mean, I, I love the ocean. Um, it, it, the energy of the ocean just calms and soothes me. Um, and so when I was thinking about what I want to do for my career, we were kind of a house divided. I grew up in Southeast Indiana. You know, we are divided between IU and Purdue um, for my parents. And I also wanted to play tennis. So I truly believed I was going to be a professional tennis player, had a great high school career, was being recruited by Big Ten schools. Um, but just something wasn't there. I convinced my parents I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, and the only, like one of the best schools to go to is the University of Hawaii. And so they basically said, look, if you're going to go out of state, you, you're going to have to play tennis. You have to get a scholarship. And so we videoed my matches. We sent them over um, and tapes. You know, we didn't have the fortune of YouTube about, right. you know, I graduated in 2002 from high school. Um, and then got an offer. So I went to the University of Hawaii to play marine bio or to play tennis and study marine biology. And 
What I quickly found out in that first semester is with all the traveling, there was no way I was going to be able to keep up with science classes. So I actually just switched my major to business. Okay. Uh, but I didn't tell my parents um, that I'd switched my major because I, I had this fear that they would make me transfer. Hmm. Um, so they didn't find out until I graduated. <laughs> um, but then coming out of college, you know, I, I was in, I, I was a lot of just operational backgrounds from the different um, retail brands. I had a passion for retail and fitness. Um, you know, I had a great college career in tennis, you know, had a couple knee surgeries. So that impacted, you know, trying to pursue going pro, yeah. um, started off, you know, fitness and just different retailers. And what I loved was I just loved interacting with, with members or customers. And so I found myself, um, leading sales operations and marketing and customer service. And then, you know, along the career path, you know, I ended up at the, at the retailer before I joined Medallia. And when I first started with them, I'd worked there for about six years. Um, when I first started with them, I was just in an operating division of about a hundred plus stores, retail locations um, in Indiana, Michigan, and we had Chicago uh, leading sales operations, marketing. And I wanted more. I wanted to advance up the corporate ladder. Um, you know, I tied success to achieving titles and promotions and salary. I think what many of us do in our sure. year. Absolutely. Um, and at that point, you know, we didn't have a fully functional website. Um, you know, we were in the lease to own industry and, you know, everything had to be done in person. And I remember, you know, at the time, um, one of our executive leaders came to travel with us. And I said, you know, it would be amazing if when customers leave feedback of products that they have of interest that they want to purchase or lease from us, they could actually just complete the lease agreement online. And then our local retail store would just deliver it to them. And they said, you know what, matter of fact, we're getting ready to start that strategy. Do you want to move to Atlanta, which is where they're based um, and help us with the change management aspect of operations and, you know, from an operation side, how do we make this work? Um, and so we did that. We uprooted our family. We moved to Atlanta about six years ago. Nice. Um, and that's kind of where I got my start is, you know, helping with that one initiative. And then very quickly it was, Hey, we think we want to build a, a mobile phone division, um, and partner with the wireless carrier. Why don't you lead that for us? So then what started happening was I just started to become this leader of all these customer facing or customer centric initiatives. Nice. Um, and that's where everything started. So no, no formal background training in customer service or customer experience. It was just, uh, I loved launching new things, building the strategy, understanding, you know, what's working, what's not working. Yeah. And then, you know, influencing the cross-functional teams to pivot when needed. Awesome. That's very cool. So you didn't have any formal training in change management either. None. Yet, that's great. No, because yeah. that's that's my background is organizational change. And that's not easy for a lot of people to, to pick up, but you just seem to kind of migrate towards it. Huh? Yeah, I think, um, you know, kind of how I got kind of the nod from our executive team for customer experiences you know, we were, it was part of when we were rolling out our mobile 
um, phone category, right? So we knew that our customers um, wanted the latest and greatest devices, but we also knew that they couldn't afford to go purchase that iPhone, you know, straight cash. They needed mm -hmm. a leasing opportunity, but we also saw, you know, partnering it with um, one of the prepaid carriers made sense for us. And I remember early on the pilot, you know, we were, we were leasing phones at an incredible velocity. I mean, we just couldn't keep them in stock, which was great. But what we also found was our customers were returning them to us very, very quickly as well. Hmm. And as we started to engage with our customers to understand why, what we found out was we were just very simply giving them tier two devices when they really wanted those tier one premium hmm. devices. And so I remember sitting, you know, giving this executive readout of, you know, the update, the overall update of what this pilot is looking like, what's the overall strategy, how we're going to scale this to 1700 stores. And one of the questions came in from our CFO really around, hey, why are our returns essentially outpacing kind of our leasing strategy right now? And what are you guys going to do about it? And, you know, Harlan, I don't know what got into me, but I'll never forget. I, I quickly just looked at them and said, look, we know that our customers want tier one. We have all the customer feedback and research that says they want tier one devices. The strategy should not be how do we convince them to change what their desires are to get a tier two device. If that's what you want us to do, we have a broader just company focused challenge where we're not listening to our customers. Yeah. And quite frankly, we should be, if this is what you want us to do with this strategy, then we're going to have greater challenges than just this. Absolutely. And I remember like, I mean, the CEO is in the room, our CFO, our president of operations, like everyone just kind of stopped and looked at me for a second. And one was a little shocked that I had the courage to kind of take a stand mm -hmm. and be that customer advocate. And, you know, so everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, come back to us what you think the tier one strategy should be. And I'll never forget, you know, a little bit later on that, that day, you know, the CEO came to my office and said, Hey, look, we really don't even have a customer experience strategy. We basically, we're just checking the box. Um, I can tell you're really passionate about it. Will you formally lead our strategy and tell us what that should look like? And so I think all of that really, you know, accumulated into, kind of leading the overall customer experience strategy. And what's interesting, Harlan, is, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about it maybe a little bit later on, but mm -hmm. I didn't know what spiked that courage in that moment. I mean, obviously there was something that really kind of agitated me. Sure. Um, and I was advocating on behalf of the customer, but as I started to go through my life story, which I know we'll talk about with an executive coach, mm -hmm. I remember, you know, reflecting on, you know, my mom who had four of us, she was a single mom, had four of us. And I remember going into a hardware store because we needed a new lawnmower. And I remember my mom, this came out in my life story where she basically told the salesperson, hey, here's my budget. I don't need all the fancy bells and whistles. I just need something to keep my kids safe while they're mowing the grass if I'm not home. And I remember going through the life story process 
the sales guy immediately took my mom to the bells and whistles. That was outside of what her budget range was. Mm -hmm. I remember her grabbing our hands when we were walking out of the store, getting in the car, we're going to go across town to, to a different store. But I remember she turned around and looked at, looked at all four of us kids and said, I don't care what you choose for your career path, but just promise me that you will never minimize the needs of someone else in order to succeed in your own venture. Awesome. And I think at that moment that probably kicked in. I mean, I remember just saying, sure. yeah, I promise. Right. I mean, you're, we're seven, eight years old. We don't know sure. what we're to, but we didn't want to be in trouble. We knew my mom was upset, but I think it's that memory that maybe had been suppressed kind of spoke to the heart of what my executive team was challenging me on of, Hey, just minimize their needs to a tier two device so that we can continue to meet our same store sales revenue and customer growth. Sure. And I guess maybe that's where I had the courage where all of a sudden that, that just hit me. Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a, a foundational age point, right? And yeah. things like that do stick and you see, you know, your mom say something and the guy totally go against, um, that's definitely something that plays in. And it's cool because, you know, we, we talk to our clients all the time in our, our consulting gigs that, that frustration that happens, whether it's your employee frustration, the uh, customer frustration, it's that difference between expectation and reality. Yeah. Here was the expectation. I was going to get this tier one stuff, right? And the reality is I got tier two. And in, unless you either reset their expectations or bring that reality up to where they need it to be and stuff, you're going to get that, you know? Yeah. That's yeah, I, I think that's, you know, expectations too. I always say to the brands that, you know, I advise is really around, you know, there's co this common myth out there that, you know, customers and both employees um, are fatigued or they're tired of giving feedback, right? They're tired yeah. of answering a survey, for example. And what I really challenge them on is, look, employees and customers as humans, we're not tired of giving feedback. We'll give you feedback all day long. Sure. What we're tired of, is brands not taking action, right? Brands being ignored, putting, yeah. being ignored and brands putting their own, you know, corporate strategic initiatives that deliver on shareholder price and my own quarterly bonus ahead of what's good for, for us as humans, whether we're mm -hmm. customers, employees, patients, even citizens for that matter. And so I always start from, Hey, this is great that you want to drive same store sales revenue but what are the behaviors from your customers or even your employees that impact that? And we always work back to probably what you do. We work backwards to this foundational approach of, okay, if we want to increase our sales volume, what are our customers currently telling us about our product variety and pricing and all those different strategic pillars, yeah. but also what's the impact of our workforce and are they inspired? And we have all these store studies that can correlate just through all the brands that we look at you know, inspired employees, of course, deliver significantly more sales volume than those yeah. who are not. And, you know, customers who, you know, remain loyal. It's not about, you know, right now, sometimes loyalty is you're the only place in town that offers this product. And so I want to buy it in person. I don't want to wait for it to be shipped to me directly. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just pigeonholed into you as a brand versus I'm loyal to you because I receive a great experience and right. you actually add value to my life. And when I do have a negative experience, whether that be online or with your mobile app or with your contact center, 
you actually take that and make changes and you optimize my experience. And that's what wins, wins my loyalty. Exactly. No, hundred percent. So we talked a little bit about uh, experience management. Um, for those people that are listening that don't really understand what that means, what is experience management? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about just experiences that we have in our, our everyday lives, right? Whether that's product experience where, you know, you're engaging with products every day. If you think about the Amazon Prime experience where I can buy essentially anything online and have it shipped to me within two days. What experience management truly is, is listening to your customers and employees, understanding what you're adding value to, or maybe you're impacting um, on their lives. And essentially taking all of your customer signals, whether that's feedback through your traditional surveys, um, maybe signals that you know your customers are giving you online with where they're shopping or what's sitting in your CRM system, but truly understanding the entire customer experience along their journey, and then democratizing all those insights to the right people in your organization, so your right teams at the right times, to functionally go and optimize that experience. So it could be, you know, maybe there's promo code issues when someone's trying to make that purchase online and maybe it's just a co an issue in the code, right? So how do your developers go and fix that breakdown in the code in order to provide a better um, digital experience? Maybe it is, you know, direct to consumer, right? I, I'll say this in retail, COVID is not what disrupted the retail industry. Amazon Prime, is what disrupted retail starting four or five years ago. Mm. COVID essentially was the equalizer of how well are we investing into this omni-channel experience mm. and are we executing at a, at a high level? If you think about direct-to-consumer, you purchase from me, now I'm sending something directly to your home. What does that experience look like? If the expectation is two days, do we deliver on time? And then what does that packaging look like? And are there you know, frictions in that experience that we can optimize that one, drive a better overall customer experience, which leads to loyalty, but two, are there cost reductions that we can make in the organization? Can we drive a better cost per acquisition for digital experience? Can we, you know, optimize, you know, that, that in-store experience where we increase, you know, cart value by driving more inspired employees? Very cool. Um, I read something on uh, LinkedIn. I get a lot of information about my guests on LinkedIn. Um, you said the most important factor behind your success has been redefining winning. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, you know, I think winning goes back, um, to such an early moment, pivotal moment in my childhood. Right. I, I already briefly talked about, you know, my mom was a single mom of four kids, um, you know, and she married our stepdad, who we all call dad now, um, when I was in middle school. But I think very early on, you know, our biological father was, um, you know, he was an alcoholic. He abused drugs. Um, he couldn't hold down a steady job. Um, very abusive. Um, not only towards my mom, but, you know, at a young age at four, I think one of the most pivotal moments for me when I define winning um, is I was always heavily physically and verbally abused by him. Hmm. And I'll never forget, there was this one time when I was four, you know, it was, it was later in the evening, my sisters and I were getting ready to go to bed. 
and I remember him coming home and we could immediately tell like he's drunk or high, even though we didn't know that. We just knew that he wasn't acting his normal self. And I was laying on the floor watching TV and I remember him sitting on my waist um, and he pinned my wrist down to the floor. And while he was spitting in my face, he told me I'd never amount to anything in life. Wow. Um, and he told me I would ju- I'd be a loser just like him. And I think at that moment, um, and I know for sure, working through you know, my, my life story, is I made a promise at four years of age that I would never be him, right? And that I could win and I wouldn't be a loser. Um, and I would amount to things in life and I would succeed. And so when you think about that, you know, growing up through childhood, I always attached winning to truly being successful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my sisters and I grew up in the pool, right? When my mom was working double shift in a factory. Um, and so the swim team, the summer swim team became an area where we could burn off our energy for our mom, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, give us something to do. And so I started competitively swimming at five. Um, and to me, that was a way that I could start proving that I was a winner. Um, and winning races proved to myself, proved to him that I wasn't a loser, right? That I would win. And so all through my childhood, you know, I would associate winning swim races with, I'm not him. I'm not him. And everything just went back to, I'm going to prove him wrong. This isn't impossible. I can win. And, you know, I got burnt out on swimming um, in middle school. I picked up a tennis racket and it kind of went back to the same thing, Harlan, where, you know, I, I fell in love with the sport. I wanted to win matches. I played on the summer travel team. I started going to USTA tournaments and, you know, winning matches, was my way of proving that I wasn't him. Like he told me I would be. Um, and I'll never forget when I got to high school, I remember the coach saying, Hey, look, just be satisfied that you're going to make the high school team. You know, we already have our varsity lineup and that fueled me. I mean, it kind of went back to, you don't amount to anything. Right. And, and that's all my mind would hear is I, you can't do this. This is impossible just be satisfied. You're not going to win. Um, and I would just train. I mean, I would skip football games. I mean, this desire in me not to lose. I mean, I, that was my biggest fear was to lose a match, Mm. um, or to lose at anything, but I ended up playing, playing varsity all four years. Um, and so I would use what people would say as, Hey, be satisfied, or we don't think this can happen, or we don't think this initiative would succeed. And it it carried over into my corporate career, right? I looked at myself as this corporate athlete, you know, Harvard did a great, you know, article on that corporate athlete and what that truly means. Um, But again, I would attach winning to climbing the corporate ladder. I would attach winning to achieving that next promotion or launching this next initiative that would turn green, right? And it would be extremely yeah. profitable and it would drive so much and just the accolades that would come with it. All of this to myself would prove that I was a winner and I could achieve anything and I wasn't him. And, yeah. you know, it got to that point where that mindset proved to be successful, right? If you look at my swimming career, you know, if you go back to my parents' house, I still have a bedroom there trophies and medals line the wall. Hmm. You know, my mom, 
Uh, all of our ribbons went into these plastic tubs and I remember she gave me mine and look, I have well over 1100 blue first place ribbons, wow. right? Very, very minimal second place and like one or two third place. Other than that, not much. So the mindset truly surfaced along the way, right? Even being in my young thirties, I was one of the youngest, you know, directors and senior directors within the organization. But I'll never forget, it's like, I got to this plateau in my career where I was just known as the executor, right? I will lead cross-functional teams. We would execute at the high level. I became so consumed with this winning mentality because I attached, I wasn't him to achieving. And I'll never forget, like I got really frustrated because about a year or two went by where I didn't receive a promotion. Mm. And I was so frustrated with why is it taking me so long to hit that next level? And at that point is when our, the organization brought in, you know, an executive leadership coach. Um, and, you know, Julie was assigned to me. And initially I was like, I don't understand why we're doing this. I like I'm succeeding at the highest levels. I don't need someone to tell me how to reframe my mental models. Like everything is good. But I think the most pivotal moment is when we did the life story. And that's when I truly started to uncover. I mean, I think I had suppressed all those bad memories with my biological father. And I didn't know deep down why I was all not only was I leading great teams, but I didn't understand the wake that I was leaving a frustration behind me in those cross-functional teams because I was a workaholic. I expected everyone to be a workaholic and they would match my passion and my desire because we had to win. And winning is something different to everyone. But during this life story process, I think that's when the promise that I made to myself at four, you know, it lived in my soul Mm. and it wired my brain to do the things that I was doing, but I truly didn't connect the dots on what happened to me at four was impacting the way that I emotionally responded um, to different situations or how it truly drove this mindset. And, you know, Julie and I had so many different spirited conversations where I'll never forget one of our conversations with her was, I don't understand why you don't like to win. And at that moment, she said, look, it's not that I don't like to win. My winning is just different than yours. And she really challenged me as a leader to get one, to be my authentic self, right? To have the courage to be your authentic self instead of, I have to be this winner to prove him wrong. Um, because it was impacting my relationships with my management team and my leaders, because if they would tell me this wasn't good enough, or if they would tell me, Hey, be satisfied with this, my brain immediately associated them with him. And so then it was, became this war of like, I'm not him. I'm not him. I'm not him. And so I think going through the mental, like going through the life story process, getting the 360 feedback, complete, doing the misseed assessment and taking all of that and forming the mental models. What I truly understood was I had to redefine what winning meant to me. And I could constantly chase proving others wrong, 
But at one point, do I reframe that and I just prove myself right? That I connect with who I am authentically as a person and I have the courage to do the things that I truly want to do for me, not to prove someone else wrong or to prove that I'm not that. Because what started happening, Harlan, was I was attaching my self-worth and my ability to be loved to not being him. And for such a long time, I didn't ever think I was worthy, though, of being a different person or being that authentic person that I truly wanted to be. And that's where a lot of the work went into redefining what winning was to me. Yeah. Well, I think what happens is, you know, somebody says something like that to you, you like you said, you internalize it, you keep that. Either you accept it, I believe what this person just said to me, or you fight them. I am never going to be what you said. The problem with that is until they say, hey, you're right, you're better than I am, it never goes away. Yeah. You know, and you're just like you said, you're stuck on that that hamster wheel, just running and running and running. Um, Julie is the one that we met through, um, and the experience you had, uh, you know, doing the life story, but everything else that went along with that executive coaching, is that something you would do again? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, you know, I still connect with colleagues of mine, um, from previous organizations, you know, just my professional network that I have, you know. A lot of, I always get just in random conversations. Hey, we see a completely different Zach um, than what we know as a former colleague or just someone else. What, what did you do? Like what changed? And I always say like, look, I know I'll have to do it again. Right. I know that in order for me to continue to become, you know, a better person, a more authentic leader, um, a more authentic, just Zach in general, um, our lives change, right? And we go through different experiences. So I know I'll definitely, I keep telling Julie, like, you can't retire yet because I know I'm going to need you <laughs> in a couple of years to, to do this again. But um, I always recommend colleagues, especially if I see that they're in a plateau within their organization or maybe they're just not as passionate for that one specific thing any longer. And they're thinking about a different career choice. Um, I always recommend them, you know, to go through this process because you, you truly surface so many things at such a deep level that you suppress for such a long time that could lead to what your new passion is. So Um, I told Julie, if she retires, I still got to call her in about 10 years or so. <laughs> so I'm going to have to do this again. Yeah. No, you don't realize until you really start talking it through. It's like, that's why I do that. Or that's why this type of thing always, always sets me off. And it's good. Once you know that, then you know kind of what to look out for. Yeah. Um, so at your previous job and now at Medallia, yeah. uh, you have direct reports working for you? No. So this is the first role where... I actually do not have direct reports Um, and I love it for the first time, you know, my career, I'm actually an individual contributor. However, um, if you think about the organization from pre-sale to post-sale and think about technology implementation and the the customer success organization and, you know, our sales directors, if you think of just about the ecosystem of our B2B relationship, Um, Although I don't have direct reports, 
you know, I have the critical departments and functions um, cross-functionally that I team up with to ensure that from, from pre-sale to post-sale implementation and, and value realization beyond, mm-hmm. um, that the brand's getting everything that they need, all the support. And so it's different, right? It, yeah. Instead of leading teams, it's now about influencing and winning through influence. So you're like an internal coach then, pretty much for these Internal teams, coach, right? right? Internal coach. And I think, you know, I think all the experiences that I had leading up to, you know, on the practitioner side, mm-hmm leading up to joining Medallia really um, became the, the groundwork that I'm get, that I was going to need, you know, to be successful yeah. in this role. Right. And it's, it's not always just about what is it that Zach needs to accomplish, but cross-functionally there's many um, teams that, that interact with our specific brands on a daily basis because we're supporting their entire experience strategy so how do I align everyone to the same mission? How do I win through influence, right? How do I show up every day to drive, you know, thought leadership in one meeting on here's what's happening in retail today, or here's what we're seeing globally, or it could be, I got to show up today to talk about maybe something very functional around how are retailers increasing their response rates. So there's many different ways that I have to show up. Um, which I think is the challenge today. Like what hat, Zach, what, what hat do you need Zach to put on? Yeah. Um, Cause we always talk about, we're going to meet our clients where they are. And you, you know, you have experience with that. Yep. And so those conversations are, are, and even questions that you ask the brands are significantly different. Yeah. Very cool. Um, but if I was to run into somebody today, one of the, the people that you currently work with or people you work with in the past and stuff and ask them, what type of leader you were? What do you think they'd say? What, what type of leader are you? I think if you were to ask someone, just a former colleague of mine, right? In my, in my previous role at the retailer, if you were to ask them, I think they would probably tell you, I'm a lead by example um, type leader, right? Where I would never ask them to do anything I wouldn't do. Um, I get my hands dirty. Um, and I know how to organize teams to drive strategy. So I think they would tell you, um, I was pretty hard nosed leader. I think, I mean, I think my team would tell as much as I love them all. And I still Mm -hmm. talk to them every day. I think they'll, they will always tell you that I always set high expectations and then we would run like hell to go achieve them. So they could also say I was an exhausting leader. Yeah. I think today, if you were to talk to anyone at Medallia, or at least I would hope, um, is they would say I'm an inspiring, authentic leader. And it's pretty fascinating, Harlan. I've, I've had some conversations um, with our you know, sales leader in the retail vertical. And I reflect back on one conversation and she said, man, you're just so chill. Like you have a way to just inspire my sales team just and motivate them through being so laid back and just how you talk about retail today. And I'm like, can we record that? Cause I don't think my team in the past would tell you that. Like I'm a completely different Zach, but I think what's led to that is just so much of that, that work that I did um, the time that I, you know, with, with Julie and the time for 
for that is that self-discovery, who I am, where the, you know, what my mental models were, how do I reframe them? Um, how do I show up in my authentic self? But I think there's also, it's also the freedom of being your authentic self. You know, I think Medallia, you know, we're the global pioneer of the experience market, right? You think about employee experience, you know, we're coaching our brands on how to deliver better um, employee cultures, right? What's that engagement look like? How do you inspire? How do you, you know, retain your, your most critical asset, which is your human capital? And we're ground zero, right? And Medallia truly believes in you bring your whole self to work, right? And what I mean by that is we celebrate everyone. We celebrate anyone from any background, any walk of life, um, you had the freedom to be your authentic person because Medallia truly believes when people are their authentic selves, that's when they have the most passion for what they're doing. Absolutely. You know, I would tell you in the past, I wasn't always encouraged to be my authentic self, right? Where we were very much just KPI oriented. Mm -hmm. We ran at driving revenue. We ran at preventing churn. Like we were only score focused and you just right. drove the hell out of those numbers. And it was that when, it, when the KPIs at all cost yeah. and, you know, Harlan, I'll tell you, I think in that article, that shout out Atlanta article, mm -hmm. probably read yep. LinkedIn. That was one of the very first times that I ever had the courage to be authentic. And what I mean by that is one, I would never have talked about, my biological father growing up, just that one piece. Yeah. The other piece is, you know, I made mention in there, you know, my battle with Waldenstrom's, right? And and how um, the illness that I fight with, with a type of blood cancer and aplastic anemia, that's one of the first times that I've truly openly talked about that mm. in public. And the reason for that is, you know, at other organizations, when you get this win at all cost mindset, you know, I would be open with some of my former leaders and say, hey, look, I'm I'm going to have to take some PTO time or I'm going to have to take some sick time. And I would try to explain to them the battle that I was currently facing. Right. And I'd have to go in and get treatment. And the question will always be, well, you're taking your laptop with you, right? You're going to be connected or you're going to be right. available by phone because we may need you. Right. How are we going to hit our numbers? Absolutely. Yes. And so at that point, you know, there had also been a couple times where, you know, I was told, hey, we wanted you to lead this initiative, but because you're sick, we don't think we should give this to you. Like it started to become, I, I almost felt like I was being discriminated against the mm -hmm. illness that I had. And so there are still colleagues today that I worked with for so many years that had no clue that I was wow. battling illness. because. I would never talk about it authentically. I didn't think I could show up as the Zach who um, has kids, right? Who has a family, um, who had this illness. And at Medallia, for the first time, I feel confident that I'm not going to be judged or discriminated against for having an illness. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, going back to your original question, I would hope that medallions would say I'm an inspiring and authentic leader. Nice. Yeah. The thing I like about the company, the more you talk about it is they, they have really embraced the 
find the person, identify their superpower and use it. Yeah. Let them use it. Right. Yeah. It's not about the numbers. It's about what do you do best and how can we help our customers and our, our stakeholders and everything. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also, you know, when you, when you are allowed to be your authentic self, I think that truly is when um, egos are minimized, right? Because you don't have to be everything to everyone. And I think, you know, I try to live that out now as there are times when I'm engaging with executive leaders at different brands where they may be asking me some questions that it's not my expertise, but it's, but it's also knowing that, Hey, this isn't my superpower. We have someone else in our medallion organization that this is their superpower. Let me bring them into the conversation, right? They're going to deliver you more value um, than what I can at a deeper level. And I think when you're, when you have the support from the organization that you work for to be your authentic self, and you can be confident that they're not going to use that kind of against you, then you show up in different ways and you can bring, you know, other colleagues in because you don't feel like you truly have to know everything. Exactly. Very cool. So we've talked a little bit about it, but, uh, I want to go back and ask, where did you find the courage to say what needed to be said, to stand up when you needed to stand up, right? And to do what's right, um, to fight with the the illness that you have, um, to agree to open up to something like the, uh, you know, the, the life story work that you did. Where did you find that courage? You know, it's interesting. I remember um, when I first, when, when Julie was first assigned to me, um, I remember going to our internal champion and saying, you know what, I don't, she doesn't have the right personality for me. Like I was used so used to just the hard nosed coaches, right? No nonsense, no BS. This is what we're going to do. And Julie just brought a completely different approach. And, and I remember having that conversation and, and, you know, the champion said, look, look, I selected her for a reason. And we know that there's greatness within you. You just have to be vulnerable. And I think it's at that moment, Harlan, where I basically said, you know, she is an expert for a reason. She has all this experience. What am I going to lose if I open up? Yep. And if I do open up and I find the ability to be vulnerable, can I just gain one thing out of the entire experience? And I think at that point, right, that's when the crossroads came down to, I'm fighting this illness. I have my own journey there. I'm trying to balance, you know, being a dad. I'm trying to balance having my professional life. And oh, by the way, I got to balance what my journey is with this illness that, you know, is very rare, has no cure. And all of my worlds were just fighting every, everything. Like they were just yeah. fighting each other. And so I, I think I came to the, have that courage of, I'm going to trust her. I'm going to trust my executive coach. She's here for a reason. She was assigned to me for a reason. Yep. And for one of the first times in my life, I'm going to trust first and be vulnerable and know that the outcomes will just align. Very cool. So looking back over your career, uh, would you do things the same? Do you think? Would you differently? 
That's a great question. I mean, I don't think I'd ever want to do anything differently. I mean, I think we could always look back and say, I mean, I wish I made this decision or I made it. I wish I made that decision. Mm-hmm. But I always, I truly believe um, that things align the way that they do in order to teach us the lessons that we need to learn in that given moment. Um, and everything that happened in my professional career happened perfectly in the right moment. It yep. shaped me to who I am today. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and relive anything. I mean, I think the lessons that I learned were incredible lessons. Sometimes they were very, very hard lessons. Yeah. Sometimes they were lessons that, um, we know we didn't want to learn, but we had to learn the hard way. Um, so I don't think I would go back and do anything different. Hmm. And Julie and I had the exact same conversation and, uh, I was telling her, my belief has always been that people come into your life for a reason. Either you're there to help them through a situation or they're in your life to help you through something, teach yeah. you something, bring something to you. Um, and everything does happen. Uh, the goal for us, I think, is to step back and say, what am I supposed to learn from this? How, how can I gain? What can I uh, use from this to better myself or better the, the community? So absolutely. Um, what type of courage do you think is most important for entrepreneurs and for leaders right now, you work with a lot of leaders and you uh, interface with a lot of these big companies and stuff. What do you, what do you think is most important for those leaders? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because I think all the leaders are at different places, you know, they're at different places in their own professional careers, the way that they're leading the organizations, the organizations may have different challenges. I think right now, the common courage that we talk about right now um, is the courage to take action, right? And, and I'll give you a quick explanation on that. When you think about employee experience, right? I truly believe in us as employees and human capital, we are much, much more valuable than an annual engagement survey that's 60 questions long and little to no action being taken from that. I truly believe that it is really understanding their their employee journey through from hire to retire, if that is your motto, but truly taking action on that feedback. And I'll give you an example. So Medallia being, we always say we're, we're you know, customer zero. We've all been on Zoom for a year and a half, now, mm-hmm. right? And we have been road warriors at Medallia, right? Like we are meeting brands in their corporate offices, you know, I was traveling around the world. And then as everything came to a stop, it was Zoom, right? And so it is not uncommon for me to be on Zoom eight plus hours a day meeting with brands. And so Medallia, we did our own internal pulse around um, what's our current mental wellness, right? And what's work-life balance look like for us as medallions? And what we found is very overwhelmingly medallions were getting burned out. We were Zoom fatigued. You know, we were all working significantly more hours because we weren't on planes, right? I would use the plane as my own professional development where I'd listen to music and I'd listen to podcasts and I would read. I don't have that downtime anymore. And so our CEO had the courage to take action, Leslie Stretch, and he said, we're and working with our people on culture and our, our chief people officer, Mary Ainsworth, was like, look, we're going to have a quarterly mental wellness day where one day every quarter medallions will have the day off paid 
to do whatever it is that they want to do that helps restore and recharge them. So our first one was last week on Thursday. Um, and what was so cool about it was organically, the organization didn't ask us to go on LinkedIn and post what you yep. were doing. Yep. The medallions were posting. You know, I went and hiked um, a trail at Red Top Mountain here at Lake Altoona. I saw colleagues posting, they were paddle boarding or spending time with their kids. Or I saw one um, principal in our life sciences org, you know, he spent the day at his horse barn, right? Because that's what truly recharged him. And so it's taking action like that, truly listening to your employees and your customers and having the courage to take action, knowing that that action may not deliver meaningful business impact the next quarter, but you know it will deliver impact for the long term. And sometimes leaders are managing quarter by quarter yep. and they're afraid to take action because they can't control those actions. Well, it's myopic. They, they're looking at the metrics. You know, is this going to improve this metric? It's like, no, but think about it. This is going to improve the company culture. It's going to improve your employees who in turn will improve your business, right? Like we're always taught, if you take care of your employees, they'll take care of your customers. Your customers will take care of the business. Yeah, I think it's, but it's all, it's greater than retail, right? I mean, I think just being um, in healthcare, right? Just being a patient myself and living through what I live through, healthcare providers taking action to making the medical experience much better. I think citizens, right? Let's, let's just all be honest. What's going on macroly around the world with just the political environment yeah. is not a great experience for anyone. Mm -hmm. But too many times we don't want to take action because it may impact me as a political leader, right? What will my constituents think if I actually right. take the action to side with the other party for once? Right. What's that going to do for my career? So we go into this like self-preservation mode as humans yeah. versus the courage to take action because it's the right thing to do. Exactly. hundred percent. Very cool. Um, so uh, final question on, on courage. Yeah. Um, if you were to go back and give yourself uh, some advice, you know, your early career and stuff like that. Um, and you wanted you to learn your younger, you to learn some type of courage. Yeah. Would it be that courage to take action? I think it might have been different for me, right? Because I was always action oriented. Um, because just training as an athlete growing up, it was always about the action, right? To become a better athlete. I think a younger self of me would be the courage to listen, to truly understand, not just to listen because I need to listen and be empathetic, but. Mm -hmm truly listening to understand. I think along the way, I've had incredible mentors that had really valuable lessons to teach me. But in my younger years, it's like, well, what are you going to teach me? Like, right. look at all the success I'm having. And so if I had to give my younger professional like advice, it would be have the courage to listen to understand because everyone can teach you something. And I think if I would have done that, it would have completely changed the trajectory of where I'm at. Well, and I think we learn more from our, our failures and our shortcomings than we do from winning. If you win constantly, 
you're not really learning anything new. You're getting better at what you do, but you're not really learning. I think you need to stop and sit back for a second, right? Yeah, absolutely. Good job. Well, exactly. This is right. We think we know everything, so we don't need to yes. listen to anyone. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not me personally, of course, but yeah. 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 Zach, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. If people want to get uh, in touch with you, can they link with you on LinkedIn? Yeah. I mean, I think just link in with me, mm-hmm. uh, probably the best or, you know, Z Hamilton at medallia.com. You know, if they just want to start up a conversation, um, okay. you know, I love learning and um, doing virtual coffees or if you're local here in the Atlanta area, you know, maybe getting outside and I like to do, I call them walk and talk. So I love to go up at a trail and just, you know, put three to five miles in walking and just having great conversations. Excellent. That sounds great. Well, I am way down here in the Noonan Peachtree City area, but uh, I'll make my way up there one of these days. That's right. I'll definitely go for a walk and a talk. Sure. Zach, thank you so much again. Thanks for being on the on the program. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. Listeners, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Uh, a lot of good takeaways from here. Hope you wrote them down. If not, listen to the podcast again and take some notes. Uh, good stuff here. And if you did enjoy it, make sure you share it with your family, friends, and colleagues and stick around because there's always more to come. That's it for me, Coach Harlan saying so long for now.